Well, good evening, and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this evening. This is a privilege to be here with you tonight, and uh, to be able to, to share with you. It was a blessing for me to hear what Robert shared in the devotional just now. I couldn't have... I couldn't have come up with a better opening for my message this evening than what he shared. And I assume that he didn't know what I was going to preach about. And so the Holy Spirit does work and operate, and we're thankful for that. Well, I want to start out, I know there's some businessmen here in your congregation, so I want to start out with a with a little business proposition, opportunity. Um, I learned about this, this business tool that you, can, that you can use in your business, and it, it'll help you identify the mistakes that you're making. And without any additional input time and energy on your part, this business tool can help you to gain 15% in profits. If that sounds interesting to you as a businessman, contact me next week and we'll, I'll tell you about it. Now, does that proposition sound like something that you'd be right ready to jump onto? If, of course, it was real, which it's not. But that's a lead-in to what I want to think about this evening in the message. How far do we want to go with God? How far do we want to go as churches with God? I spent about three weeks studying the book of Acts and then another three weeks teaching the book of Acts at Bible school over the past couple weeks. And I was challenged by some things that I saw in the book of Acts, very challenged by those things. And they made me step back and evaluate some things in my own life and in church life. And I'll confess to you that as I left Bible school and drove home, I felt a little bit discouraged. Not because of what I saw in the book of Acts, but because I felt like we as conservative Mennonite people need a challenge to be what God wants us to be. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. The title of the message this evening is The Parable of Potential. Here in Matthew chapter 25, this is a very familiar parable, and uh, I'll, just, I'll just begin by reading it, and uh, then go from there. Starting at verse 14, we're going to read through to verse 30. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. 
Then he that had received the five talents went and traded the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he that received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then... At my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For, every, for unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is a familiar parable. But I want to start out by saying that this parable is not about money. Even though the talents were a form of money at that time, Jesus was using it as an illustration. Uh, you'll notice in verse 14 he said it is as a man. So he was making a comparison. This parable is about potential. And that's how we treat the world. We treat the world like it's a place that has potential. And so we look at the things around us and... and as we look at those things, we evaluate their value in relation to the potential that we see in them. And that's one of the things that separates us from the animal kingdom. A squirrel goes and buries a nut. He buries that nut to go back and pick up that one nut. But we would bury the nut to grow a tree that would produce more nuts. Because we look at that acorn and we see the potential that lies in that acorn. We give things value on what we believe they can become. And then we operate according to that belief. So the things we have control of, the things that we've been given, we look at, we evaluate, and we use them according to what we believe they will, how they will profit us. But that value system has to be ordered according to what is true if it's going to reproduce the results we're hoping for. So if we have something of value and we don't use it properly, we won't realize its potential or we won't receive the potential that it could have offered us. So that's how we, that's how we look at the world. In verse 3, I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 15, three men were giving according to ability. And I have two questions for you in relation to that. First question is, have you been given something? And 
Maybe a better way to say that would be everything that you have, you've been given. Because if you stop and think about our place in the world, you know, pretty much everybody in the world would like to live in America. Well, you live in America. Not only that, not only do you have that opportunity, but you also have the opportunity of having God's word. So if you're here tonight, most likely you have access to God's word. You're hearing from God's word. What does that mean? Well, that means that you have the words of eternal life. And all that opportunity traces back to God placing you in a certain time, in a certain place in the world. And you're here tonight because God has done that for you. And so you have been given something. Something of great value. The second question is, what part does ability play? Well, ability is simply your accountability to the giver. So, in this parable, a certain amount was given to each man according to his ability, and then the expectation of the return was on the basis of the gift, of what was given. In verses 16 and 17, we can see the two servants invested, the first two. Well, why did they invest? Well, they invested because they saw potential in what they had been given. How did they invest? Well, they took the money, and instead of clinging to it or keeping it, they let go of it. They, they gave it out in investment and applied its potential to the marketplace and then were able to receive as a result of that. In verse 18, the servant did not invest. The third servant did not invest. So what was the problem with what he did? He took what he'd been given, he kept it safe, he put it in a safe place, and he waited until the Lord returned, and he had what he had been given, and he gave it back. Well, the problem was that his vision didn't go beyond maintenance. His vision simply stopped at maintaining what he was given. And it did not realize the potential that it had because he only wanted to maintain what he was given. In verse 19, we see that there will be a day of reckoning in which we will give account for what we have received. In verses 21 and 23, the message to the first two servants is identical. So one man was given five talents. He went out and traded with that. He received five more talents. So he had ten talents. And he had those ten talents to give to the Lord. And the Lord said, you know, well done, you good and faithful servant. Well, the other man only had four. That's not even half of what the first man had. And yet he received the exact same commendation. Because it wasn't based on how much they had made. It was based on what they had done with what they themselves had been given. And so the reckoning is not in relationship with comparison between two servants. The reckoning is in relationship with what each individual was given. 
in verse 24 and 25, the third servant gives account. And in verse 24, he points out that he knew that the master had an expectation. So he knew that there was an expectation for what he had been given. But verse 25 is the key. He said, and I was afraid. And the reason that he didn't invest was because he was afraid. Fear paralyzed the potential that his gift had. Fear was the inhibiting factor. And fear holds us back from realizing our potential. You see, investment has risk. Those first two servants had to let go of their money to gain return. The first servant was not willing. He was afraid to let go. And in letting go, gain. He tried to protect it and cling to it. And that's so easy for us to do. It's so easy for us just to cling to what we have and not be willing to let it go and invest it. I'd like to take four points out of this parable, and I'd like to apply them to two areas of our lives. The first point is opportunity is potential. What opportunities have I been given? Investment is a requirement. How am I investing? Number three, comparison between servants does not lead us to truth. With whom am I comparing? And four, fear paralyzes our potential. Am I afraid? The first area I'd like to consider is spiritual life. God created us as physical and spiritual beings. And in his original creation, the, the physical aspect of our being was subservient to the spiritual. So the spiritual had the control over the physical aspect of who we are. And that was his original design. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that value system got reversed. And the physical became the priority. And in the physical becoming the priority, they lost what God had initially designed them to be. They became materialistic, if you will. And in the narrow sense, that's the ownership of things, the desire for the ownership of things. But in the broad sense, materialistic is the obsession with the physical or the priority being on the physical instead of on the spiritual. Maybe a better word to use would be carnal or carnality. That's one of the words that the New Testament uses. And that word is the word, the Greek word for that in the New Testament is sarkikos, which means pertaining to the flesh, bodily, temporal, unregenerate, and it's talking about the obsession or the focus of our lives being on the physical aspect of who we are. And that base word for that is sarks, which is usually translated flesh in the New Testament, which means literally meat, like my physical body. And that physical aspect of who we are and the spiritual aspect of who we are has a a continual ongoing conflict 
That conflict is, relates to both our direction as well as our will. In Romans 8, 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's an, that's an opposition of direction. And there's opposition of will in Galatians 5.16. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to another, so that, they cannot, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And so there's this opposition that exists between the physical and the spiritual. And the New Testament calls us to walk according to the spiritual, according to the spirit. To make that the priority. And by becoming materially oriented, we bury the potential that God has given us in His Spirit. Speaking to the Christian in Romans 8, 12, and 13, Paul says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So if you live according to flesh priority or the, the physical priority, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if through the Spirit the physical is made subservient to the spiritual, you will live. And the picture that I want you to get is that our potential as believers does not lie in our physical existence. It lies in our spiritual existence. It's in our spiritual life. Well, what opportunity have I been given? God has given us his spirit. What does that mean for us? I'd like some input from you. What does it mean to you that God has given you his spirit? Maybe there's a verse or a thought that comes to your mind. To give us power to live according to God's will. Direction, that's good. Mm hmm, that's good. How limited is God? How limited is God's power? It's not very limited, is it? God has opened up the floodgates of heaven and poured them into your being. If you are a Christian, God has given you the power of heaven in his spirit. And that unleashes a tremendous opportunity to us. Tremendous potential. How much could we do? Now I'm thinking about the book of Acts. What happened in the book of Acts when the Spirit was poured out on those people? Things happened. Things happened in the lives of people. What opportunity have I been given? Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. We have the power from heaven to do what God wants us to do and to live the way He wants us to live. Praise the Lord. 
Well, if we have that opportunity, if we have that potential, how are we investing it? How am I investing it? Well, to invest, we have to let go. So God gave us life, and Jesus said, except you lose your life, Whoso wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so God is calling us, God is asking us, he's requiring us to release the physical so that we can obtain the spiritual, so that we can reach the spiritual potential. How am I investing? Am I completely letting go? With whom am I comparing Do I consider that I'm not accountable based on the brother or sister sitting beside me or across the aisle? But my comparison needs to be with Jesus Christ. And if I'm comparing my life with someone else's life sitting in the pew beside me, then I'm damaging my potential. Because that's not the potential that God has for you. The potential that God has for you is to be made into the image of His Son. And He wants to do that through His Spirit working in your life. Am I afraid? Am I afraid to release everything to God? Am I afraid to really let go and be everything that God wants me to be because of what it's going to mean for me? What it's going to cost me? Am I afraid because I think it's going to cost me too much? And I'm not just talking about your money. Talking about, am I afraid to let go of my life, which includes my money? Are we burying our potential by not being willing to release it and invest it as God wants us to? Is the Anabaptist church in America burying its spiritual life in materialism and carnality? You know, we, we live in a land of tremendous physical opportunity, tremendous physical blessings. We can have the American dream. We can be successful physically. And, you know, we can put on these outward things that they're not wrong. They actually can be potentially right, but then live the rest of our life the way that we want to live it and, and build that American dream under the guise of going to church on Sunday and you know, one of the most common things that, that I hear when um, I ask people that call on the billboard line, one of the most common things that I hear when I ask them if they're a Christian is, well, you know, I was baptized. And they don't even know what the, what the new birth is. Um, I was baptized. And, yeah, you know, I don't go to church as much as I should. Um, or they'll say, you know, I go to church every Sunday, so that means I'm a good Christian, right? That's not what it means. And I think in our hearts, we know that's not what it means. But it's so easy for us to evaluate ourselves on the basis of, the, of, of some things that we're doing right and not think about how much God really wants us to, to do and to be. But I'd like to bring that idea back again to the thought of do the material things have our focus? Do they have our attention? Jesus said, after all these things do the Gentiles seek, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So God is calling us to put our focus on the spiritual, 
And Gary Miller wrote a book called Keeping Going, Going Till You're Going, and one of my friends was telling me about the book, and I haven't read it. Probably should, but he said the gist of the book was that, you know, we, we start out in our Christian life as conservative Anabaptists. We start out in our Christian life, and, you know, maybe we're excited about God and excited about the things of God, and we, we get married, and, and we have children, and, and things are starting to go pretty good, and about the time we hit middle age, we're just saying, you know what? I got my business. I got my family. I've got my life is just pretty good. I'm just going to take it easy. I'm just going to do just what I have to do and, you know, do these few things I need to do to be right with the church and come to church on Sunday and, and all that stuff. And we turn into bench warmers instead of kingdom builders. Brothers and sisters, God wants more from us in warming the church bench. And I'd like to challenge us this evening to be willing to invest beyond our fear to be willing to invest beyond what we perceive that we have to do, but look at the potential that God has given us and embrace that potential and be willing to invest. Basically, what I'm doing is what I did was outline the greatest commandment that a love for God supersedes everything else in our lives. Second area I'd like to look at is church life. You know, as conservative Anabaptist people, many of us grew up in, in good homes. And we have a tradition of biblical obedience. That's one of the, the traditions of Anabaptist faith, is that we follow what the Bible teaches. And we believe that the words of Jesus are not just true, they're not only true, but they're meant to be lived out in our lives. And so that, the, the combination of those beliefs has put us in a place that has brought a lot of value into our lives. And sometimes we get so accustomed to those values. And I, I don't know, I think sometimes we're so sheltered by the cocoon that that has put around us that we often don't realize how bad things are in the world around us, how truly bad they are. And how truly needy they are. And so as a result of that, we don't really appreciate the value that that has brought into our lives. That biblical obedience, that heritage of biblical obedience. And I don't mean to imply that our past has been perfect. But we are, we do become accustomed to the values that we receive as a result of it. And we tend to forget how valuable it is. So how am I investing in the church? If the life of the church has value in my life and it has brought values into my life, how am I investing into that? Well, the church is not the administrative structure. It's the people. And how am I investing in the people that make up this body, this local body of believers? Well, first of all, you have to see the potential. Does this church in this community have potential? Absolutely, this church has potential. Do the people sitting in the pews have potential? Absolutely. How am I investing? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants this church in this community to represent the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And each one of you has been given something to make that happen. To bring to the body, to make that happen. To build that up. To bring that into existence. It's not, what you have been given is not just for you. When God gave you His Spirit, He didn't give you His Spirit just for you. He gave you His Spirit to build up the body of Jesus Christ, the church. How are you investing that? With whom am I comparing? Do we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to fellow servants? Do we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves with the church down the road? We shouldn't. We better not. We need to fix our eyes on what God says the church should be. And we need to invest in the church as if that's a reality. Like Robert was saying, that there's something that we can't see that's going to come into existence. Because God said it would. And if we do it His way, it will come into existence. Are we living by faith in relation to what the church could be? You see, the problem with comparison is, there's two problems with comparison. One of them is it's not a high enough standard. The other one is that when we compare ourselves to each other, it creates a competitive relationship. And the church is designed for unity, not for competitiveness. And we will never reach our potential if we are comparing among ourselves. And we should keep that language and that kind of talk out of our hearts. We're not comparing with one another. We're comparing with God's word and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that needs to be our goal. Am I afraid? Am I afraid that what I have to share with the body isn't good enough? Am I afraid of what people will think? Or what if it all comes out wrong? Or what if I get done preaching this message tonight and you all don't like what I said? Am I afraid? Am I afraid that if I give myself to the church in a wholehearted fashion and commit myself to these people, but it'll turn around and bite me for doing it. Am I afraid? And if we're afraid, it's going to paralyze our potential. What is the antidote to fear? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. A spirit-filled life has a fruit. And that fruit is love. And that love will cast out fear. And if our churches are filled with people who are filled with the Spirit of God, there's going to be love in those churches and not fear. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, have we from him, 
that he who loveth God love his brother also. It seems to me like some of the biggest challenges that we have faced and are facing as conservative Mennonite people are materialism and individualism. And both of those have the same root. And they're in self-focus and self-sufficiency. And over the years, we've had so much opportunity for physical gain and physical success. And it's put us in a place where we don't really need each other from a standpoint of survival. And so since we don't need each other for survival, then why do we need each other spiritually either? And so materialism is the groundwork in which individualism begins to manifest itself. I'd like to bring both of those two areas of, of life, of our lives together, our spiritual life and church life. You know, they're really interconnected. Just like I was saying about spirit-filled people in a church are going to bring unity and power to the body. They're really interconnected. And the Great Commission contains a twofold responsibility. One, to make disciples, and the second is to disciple those disciples to the obedience to the commands of Christ. And so it's not just that we should go out and make disciples. We should do that. And it's not just that we should build up the local body. We should do that. It's both together. God is calling us to both of those things. Not just one, not just the other. And this is not just a formalistic obedience, but it's the kind of burden that you hear in Paul's message to the Galatians. In Galatians 4.19, he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He's talking about something that happens inside of them, something that happens in their spiritual life that's so dynamic and powerful that it expels itself outward in a, in a Christ-like life until Christ be formed in you. Is that the idea that we have about our church life and our brothers and sisters? That we are so enamored with what can happen when the spirit and power of God get a hold of a person that it can change the way we live. And not only the way that I live, then when I experience it, I want other people to experience it. We're talking about spiritual power and discipleship. We need both of those things desperately. I believe that the future of the conservative Mennonite church is depending on people who are experiencing God in such a powerful way that it changes the way they live. And then they want other people to experience it. And they're willing to invest in those people until they reach the place of maturity where they also experience it and also lead others in that same direction. Are we taking that kind of an attitude and do we appreciate the work that others are doing in the body of Christ in the way we should? You know, I'd like to think back a little bit to the business proposition that I made. You know, it's really easy to look at our businesses and, and their potential and be quick to jump on something like that. Be right ready to, to, to get into an opportunity that's going to make you more money. And you know, if, if that means I find out a few mistakes that I'm making, well, that's not that big a deal. 
But it seems like we're more hesitant to look at the church that way, in our church life that way. We were studying Ananias and Sapphira in Sunday school a couple months ago, and I was teaching the youth class that Sunday, and it just hit me as we were studying that lesson, do I want to know if there's sin in my life? And my first thought was, not really. Why? Why was, my, why was that my response? Because if somebody came to me and said, you know, you want, I, I want to help you with your business, I, I see a mistake you're making in your business, I'd be all ears. So why don't I want to know about sin? Because sin is a spiritual mistake. Well, there's another aspect to it. And sin has a moral implication as well. And so if, if there are areas in my life where I have sin, if I'm just making a business mistake, then I'm just making a mistake. But if I'm sinning, then there's something that's morally wrong with me. And I don't want other people to know that. But brothers and sisters, if there is something that is morally wrong with us, don't we want to know about it? I mean, we need to think seriously about getting rid of the things that are hampering our spiritual lives. What if the first two servants in this parable had seen what the, what the third servant was doing, and they'd go into him and they said, you know, brother, we're concerned because we know what the master's expectation is. And... We're afraid that what you're doing isn't what he wants you to do. And we would like to see you make some changes and invest this money so that the Lord is pleased with your life. And the third servant had said, you know what? That's good advice. I'm going to do it. And he would invest his money, and he would end up with two talents. Do you think that the response of the Lord would have been any different for him with his two talents than the men with four and ten. It wouldn't have been. Because that wasn't, the, the amount of money wasn't the issue. But that would have meant two things. One thing is it would have meant humility on the third servant's part because he'd had to been willing to accept the advice of the other two men. But it also means that it took investment on the part of the first two to invest into his life and ask him and challenge him to a higher walk in his obedience to the master. And then, instead of losing everything, he would have gained a reward. Have we become like the third servant? Do we know that God has an expectation, but we're afraid of the hard work of investment? We're afraid of what it's going to mean for our lives. We're afraid of the risk. Are we burying what we have been given? I say if we are, beware. Because God doesn't squander his gifts. And even what we have will be taken away. And I've just been burdened over the years with how many people the conservative Mennonite church has lost. What if... We could not only retain those people, but also gain new people from the communities around us. Don't you think that's what God wants from the church? 
I believe that it is. And I believe, brothers and sisters, and I'm speaking for myself, that I need to invest. I need to invest in my spiritual life. I need to invest in the body of Christ. And uh, we will be making investments that will last for eternity, not just for a couple more years. May the Lord bless you as you invest in his kingdom.